This is Courage Cast. Faith, inspiration, and motivation for today. Well, hey, friends, this is Eric Nordoff, and you're listening to another episode of Courage Cast. Yesterday, we started a conversation with Matt Parker, who founded and still oversees the Exodus Road, an amazing ministry with a huge calling. And we left off with Matt first experiencing his first experiences with human trafficking and what a shock and awe and how sickening it was. And then as he first learned about this and got exposed to it on his missions work over in Southeast Asia, I asked him, what did he do next? What did he, how did he respond? And what led him to eventually start and begin and found the Exodus Road? Here's his response. Once, once I kind of learned that, you know, there was a system, there was a system here of going to these villages and recruiting the pretty girls and moving them down to a major city. I started to just ask questions and do more and more research. Eventually that led me to partnering with local law enforcement. They, they actually were trying to tackle human trafficking in this city where I was. And I, uh, through some friends who were in an aftercare shelter type environment, they invited me to come work with law enforcement and, you know, I, I tell this story quite a bit, but, but that experience for me was, you know, I, I really didn't know very much about trafficking. And I think this, this is a good maybe lesson for all your listeners that, you know, just you know, I felt like I stumbled across this problem in the world. I really had no business being there. I wasn't Jason Bourne or a cop or right. I wasn't an FBI agent. And I think a lot of times we always when we come across issues, we're like, oh, well, someone else we'll take care of this. This really isn't any of my business. And I think when we come across suffering in the world, sometimes we think that, Mm -hmm. but in this case, um, they had lots of NGOs, uh, working with them and they kind of divided the room into the three main categories of counter trafficking, which I call the three pillars of counter trafficking. They divided the room up between interest Mm -hmm. of prevention, intervention, and aftercare. Mm -hmm. And, You know, I sat there, you know, really not knowing where I would fit because I didn't I hadn't contributed anything. I didn't know very much. And it was like the room just split like the party of the Red Sea. Half of the groups went to prevention and half of the groups went to aftercare. And it was me and maybe two other guys who were left representing nonprofit organizations that, you know, said, hey, I'll I'll try to help out as I can in intervention. And how do we find these girls? And I think if I were to describe my experience, you know, there's a lot of organizations talking about human trafficking. There's a lot of, uh, you know, awareness that's been made and all that's critically important to, to mobilize us. But the 27 million, and now they're estimating 45.8 million uh, modern day slaves. Well, those are people that are being abused right now, tonight. They're going to be raped tonight. Um, and very few people are looking for the 45.8 million people. There's a lot of people trying to prevent prevent it, and there's a few people trying to help those who come out of it. But there's very few organizations that are trying to actually find and free 
current victims of human trafficking. And, and that was haunting to me when I learned that. So I, as I started to work with law enforcement, I spent a year doing research in Southeast Asia, identifying trafficking trade routes and trying to learn the process that law enforcement had of identifying victims and, you know, doing a rescue operation and prosecution and what kind of uh, victim services were offered after that and how do you repatriate a victim and make sure she's you know, as best as we can, you know, set back on her feet back into society. Well, there's several steps to that process, but but after a year, the subcommittee I was on, we kind of just looked up from the table with this eureka moment that no one's really looking for these kids. You know, everybody knows that there's kids being trafficked. Everybody talks about it, but Law enforcement are largely complicit, you know, in other countries at least, and uh, they're either transporting these victims, being paid to protect the syndicate or the establishment, um, or they're underfunded, understaffed, and undertrained, and they don't have the the equipment they need, or they don't even understand their own laws sometimes as it relates to human trafficking law because the law itself is pretty new. Yeah. Um, and so we just felt like, well, what if what if we just helped locate them? You know, so I went to the sergeant colonel I was partnering with at the time and I just offered that. I said, look, you're probably going to laugh me out of the room. I'm just a civilian. But uh, would it be helpful if I went and looked for victims of trafficking mm-hmm. uh, kind of in the darkest corners of Southeast Asia, you can imagine. Right. So they didn't have said, anybody doing this. Law enforcement well, was not doing not this. Really. I mean, no, they didn't have any foreigners. They had various task forces and law enforcement officers, but a lot of these officers will not be permitted to enter into these establishments because the brothel keepers believe if you're a a national, a local national, that you may be connected with police. And so they, they cater just to foreigners. Got it. Okay. And so we kind of fit this unique niche of like, Hey, I'm a foreigner and I want to help, but you know, would it be helpful? And he looked at me and he said, Matt, everybody loves to talk about trafficking. But no one wants to do what you just asked. Yeah. And that was a pivotal moment for me. And he deputized me to be on his team. And I spent my weekends driving in Southeast Asia looking for kids for sale. And I began to find kids for sale. So posing as uh, someone that would be willing to pay for that. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's even more simple than that. Basically, I would just go into a brothel or a beer garden. I mean, there's so many different places, a karaoke club. And I would just have a beer and just sit in the corner and observe. And if if the brothel owner or, you know, Mama Son or whoever came up to me and offered me someone for sale, I would record that and, and deliver that to law enforcement. So it, it's really it's really pretty simple. And yet I learned a lot that first year of what not to do and how to do it. And, you know, we've really at the Exodus Road, I knew very early on. <laughs> that my wife had to be involved in this. Um, you know, I'm going into some of the, the nastiest, darkest corners of the world, but these are places that really broken men find themselves looking for some type of love connection. And yeah. there's all kinds of risks associated with that physical risk, but there's the moral and ethical risk that, that Laura and I knew straight away that we've got to really lock this down yeah. with our marriage and with our faith. And so what we've done is, we've written out a best practices uh, field operations manual and we train diligently all of our deployed operatives 
you know, what is it that, you know, how do we collect evidence? How do we avoid inappropriate touch or behavior because these places are full of that kind of thing? Um, and we've really kind of gotten it down to this, this science of, of how we collect the evidence that we need to deliver to law enforcement without compromising our ethics or our morals. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but that was that first year of doing this was so scary for me. And you talk about fear uh, in your podcast. And for me, I was so afraid. And I think I was raised as a Southern Baptist Christian boy. <laughs> I never I never went to strip clubs uh, in high school. I just somehow was able to avoid that uh, through my my discipline and my faith. Well, here I am overseas going into these places for the first time and um you know, I kind of had this idea of what I might encounter, you know, um, and I, in my mind, I kind of thought, well, you know, this place is probably full of evil and debauchery and, and really awful people. And I think we do tend to demonize people very easily. Even the homeless community here sure. in this, it's, mm -hmm. you know, you see a guy holding the sign and your very first thought typically is, well, that guy is probably making 60 grand driving a portion. Hmm. Uh, or I don't trust him or he's going to take this money and go get alcohol. Well, those things may be true, but they may not be true. Right. And, and I think my experience in the brothel, I remember that first time going in, I was so afraid. <laughs> mm -hmm. And in my mind, I conjured up all these images of, you know, I don't know, evil forces and demons and you know, awful people who would slit my throat in the back alley. And uh, when I went into that place, I was really shocked um, when I started to engage with the Mama Sons and the traffickers and the Johns that were coming from all over the world to pay for cheap sex and engage with these sweet little girls who had been trafficked and had found themselves in, an, in a place that they desperately wanted to leave. And yet, if they if they didn't wear their smile, you know, they, they probably wouldn't meet their quota. Mm. Uh, which mean they would be beaten or which means, you know, their debt, if they had debt bondage would increase. Mm -hmm. And as I started to just interact with these people, these, these different types of people, I realized something very, very clearly that these people are not, you know, kind of vampires with blood dripping from their teeth. They're broken, poor people. Yeah. Everybody in the brothel is broken. I mean, they, the Johns are desperate for love. Many of them have been through multiple marriages and are just as lonely as you could possibly imagine. So the Johns are the uh, the foreigners that yeah. are pursuing uh, these yeah. girls. Okay. Mm -hmm. So so they're they're broken, and then you, the pimps and the mama sons and the traffickers they're broken and they're poor. Yeah. Most of them have a family. They got three kids. They're trying to keep in school. And this is the way that they found they could make money. And so they've made certain ethical and moral concessions to do that, you know, but I can kind of understand the love of your family to the point where you may hurt someone else to protect them. Right. And the girls themselves are just so hollowed out and broken and they miss their family. They miss their mom and they don't know how to get back to them. So when I walked into that brothel, I was, it's almost like, a veil was pulled behind from my eyes to yeah. say, you know, this place, the, the reason it exists is because good men and women are too afraid to come into this place yeah. and offer light and offer hope and offer love to really poor and broken people. Yeah. And it is bizarre. I think human trafficking thrives because the good men and women of the world don't tend to frequent the places where trafficking happens. There's there's kind of these cracks within society that collect broken people. 
Uh, if you're poor, if you're uneducated, if you can't find a job, everybody kind of ends up in these cracks of society uh, where they can make money, whether it be a legal action that they're doing or whatever they can do to survive, they end up there. Well, those cracks are not the places that the successful in society hang out. It's not, it tends to not be uh, where, where people offering services end up. And so these are the slums of the world, the brothels of the world, these places that collect broken people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they desperately need are people to come alongside them and to heal them and to, to get them back on their feet. Uh, but instead, we tend to demonize them and say, well, they deserve it or, you know, that's too – I don't want to get messy. I don't want to get blood on my hands. So I'm going to leave them uh, to their own. And it's very much, you know, uh, the, the Good Samaritan story yeah. uh, from the Bible where there's someone broken and hurting that's on the di- in a ditch beside the road. And the people who should be helping are walking by. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, you know, I, I don't want to try to make it sound like I'm anything very special. I, I'm not. I'm, I'm just a normal guy that has this vision that, Hey, I think we can actually help these people Mm. by simply identifying them and then building relationships with law enforcement to rescue them and get them back home Mm -hmm. and arrest those who are doing it to them. And for me personally, um, I know that the guys that are trafficking people, they're broken people and they need to be stopped. They need to be disrupted. And I think an arrest is a very powerful way to do that. Um, uh, without doing them any physical harm, you can stop what they're doing. Um, and that's for us at the Exodus Road, we never break any local laws or we do our very best to partner with law enforcement because I believe long-term systemic change will not come from me. It's going to come from the societies in which we work, the people who learn that, Hey, there's a girl being trafficked in my neighborhood. And they read about that in the paper after a rescue operation. And Corrupt law enforcement are, are very difficult to work with. They're motivated by two things, fame and money. Mm. Well, we can't bribe them, but we can make them famous for doing their job. Yeah. Or at least we try to. And so that comes through joint press releases. And we partner with law enforcement to deliver uh, techno- technology gear, cyber forensics gear, covert recording devices, things that, that they really couldn't afford with their budget. And then it makes a little bit famous and then they get famous for doing their job. And there is this ripple effect of doing good in the world that we've, we've observed Mm -hmm. in in India. When we do a rescue, oftentimes they'll bulldoze the brothel. Mm. And I think that is such a powerful statement to society, to their communities. Um, Our social workers are in these villages, educating families not to sell their daughters or they're going to be arrested. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so we have seen entire village communities changed in India where they're not selling their daughters anymore. And all of that has come through very humble effort. And, and I just think, you know, when you talk about this idea of fear keeping you from ushering in the kingdom of God or, or pushing your business forward or making those decisions that, that are the right decisions, even though they're scary to make, you know, I know, I know a little bit about that. And I would say when I first started all this, I had no idea we'd rescue 749 kids. I wasn't even sure if we'd rescue one kid. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't, you know, and I think that's how great things start is it's like, well, we're going to do all that we can do because there's a little girl here, a little boy here that no one is looking for. 
She has no way to stop or change her fate. Okay, so that is the end of the second part of my three-part conversation with Matt Parker, founder of The Exodus Road. Here's what I've been able to do this week. This week after my interview with Matt, I set up a Courageous Community fundraising page. This is the place where you can donate and get involved. Uh, I said in the interview, I'm really looking for ways to get involved, and I'll talk a little bit more about this tomorrow in the last part, but uh, what what we can do is we can give, and we can give financially, we can give in our prayer, and I want to support the Exodus Road, and, and I, I, I've been racking my brain since this interview how we could do that. And I've gone ahead and started a monthly $35 donation uh, in our name, Courageous Community, and I'm looking to raise $350 a month in donations to start from the Courage Cast podcast and the Courageous Community. So I'd ask you to prayerfully consider giving and joining the fight against modern slavery. You can do that very simply by going to CourageousCommunity.com, and on the right-hand side, on the very top, you'll see the word give. When you click on that, you'll be going to the fundraising page for the Exodus Road. Very simple. You can also go to CourageousCommunity.com forward slash give, but uh, either way, uh, go there, prayerfully consider giving and being a part of our cause with us and joining the rest of the Courageous Community. Uh, very simple to do, very easy to do, and I look forward to doing this with you and participating in the child rescues together with you. Again, I hadn't planned on this, but after our interview, uh, I was able to talk with Matt a little bit more and Michelle uh, in the uh, office there, and uh, we were able to work out something. So I hope this is uh, a good option for you, and I, I'm looking forward to being a freedom partner with you uh, to support the cause of ending modern slavery. Let's put it to end right now. All right, friends. Well, that's it for me today. Uh, Thanks for listening to an extra long episode today, but this one's important. So I'll be back again tomorrow with another episode, the third part of my conversation with Matt Parker. In the meantime, have a great day, everyone. God bless you.